I'm just so excited. If you could just imagine this literally before coming up here, I literally leaped up into the air, jumped up just because I was excited. I was like, yes, we got it, Rachel, we got it. <laughs> so she gave me this acronym that yeah. organizes the challenges of building yeah. conscious beings. And we'll reveal it on your show. This yeah. will be the seed for ripples of influence and interest. Yeah. I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But I'm pretty excited about it. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me for the third time, Dr. Josh Rasmussen. This time we're going to be talking about uh, the mind and how to create the mind, but more from an artificial intelligence angle. So I've had him on to discuss his book, Who Are You Really? A Philosopher's Inquiry into the Nature, nature and Origin of Persons. This book is fantastic and I commend it to all my audience. I had him on once to talk about how, how to create consciousness at all, how to create like dream characters who are conscious, just the mystery of consciousness and how it's something to be explained, whether you're a theist or atheist or whatever you are. And it was a really, really fun episode. So go check that one out. Before that, I had him on to talk about the metaphysics of truth. What is truth? What are propositions? What are facts? Uh, covering his doctor uh, dissertational work. It's awesome. It's really, really fun. He's just such a good metaphysician and he took a deep dive into consciousness. And so I had him on one more time here. Uh, hopefully of like a hundred. I hope he comes on just a bunch because he's so good. But this time we talk about consciousness um, and I pitch some ideas from artificial intelligence. As many of my audience members will know, I've taken a deep dive or hard fork into AI literature in order to help us all think about it more clearly. So Josh helps me think through how you might go about creating a mind, some philosophical constraints for the AI researchers, why uh, patternist theories of mind aren't it, they're not uh, everything, how uh, you know computation, computational views of the mind still need a mind, uh, and it looks like it needs an immaterial substance. So Josh defends those claims, and we go in real, real deep on the nature of consciousness and minds and how consciousness might emerge and what it might emerge out of. So uh, if you guys like this podcast, please support it. Please support me on Patreon or support me on YouTube members. Um, that would be huge. You can buy merch and all that stuff, but check the description for different ways to support. The two big ones for real are Patreon and YouTube members. I want to do this full time. I want to be a researcher, researcher, learn how to say that word too. Um, that would be huge. So please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member, and you can get all sorts of exclusive content. I have over like eight hours of apologetics lessons that I taught at my church. And those are exclusive. I'm never going to make those public. Those are only for paying supporters. So uh, do go and find those. That'd be awesome. And join us on Facebook in the Facebook group, Parker's Pensies Pensiers. There should be a link in the description wherever you're getting this at. Maybe not audio. Just find it. It's on Facebook. It's not so bad. All right. That's enough commodification and uh, self-promotion. Let's jump in with Josh Rasmussen for the third time talking about consciousness and artificial intelligence. All right, Josh, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Thank you. I'm just so excited. I was telling Rachel, like, this is one of my most fun things to do. 
And I brought some of my kids' toys here to help illustrate some. Oh, of I'm so glad. I forgot to ask you. I'm yeah, so I was like, literally, if you could just imagine this, me jumping up and down, because I was just so excited when my wife and I came up with this acronym that I was just telling you about before the yeah. show that yeah. organizes the challenges of building yeah. conscious beings. So yeah. thanks for having well, me. Real quick, man. So before you came on last time, uh, let me just plug this book. Who are you really? A philosopher's inquiry into the nature and origin of persons. I was, I was telling Josh beforehand that this is the philosophy of mind book I think I'm going to give people from now on because you can actually read it if you're not a philosopher. If you're not a philosopher of mind, you can read it. It's fun. It's like the fun type of like philosophy professor you think of uh where it's like oh wouldn't this be weird and like yeah that would be weird but then you actually get really deep in so it's not just like we're going to talk about the same stuff everyone talks about no we're going deep so i recommend this but last time before you came on um you had lunch with your wife rachel and um she helped you figure out another thing so then before this time she helped you figure something out she's like she's a beast man is she a philosopher like by training or just from so being she- with you or what yeah, she's multi-talented. I think she has this quality to make things beautiful and awesome. Mm. Yeah. So she helps me to, but but on a conceptual level, mm. um, as well as a presentation level. So, I mean, I was, if you could just imagine this, literally before coming up here, I literally leaped up into the air, jumped up just because I was excited. I was like, yes, we got it, Rachel, we got it. <laughs> so she gave me this um, acronym and we'll reveal it on your show. Yes, this will be the seed for ripples of influence and interest yeah. I, I don't know we'll see but yeah. i'm pretty excited about it yeah oh, me too man well so let me just give a little quick preview for the folks where we're going so you can stay tuned and keep watching um we're gonna talk about consciousness machine consciousness and patternism patternism is a philosophy of mind that says like you are a, your pattern your pattern of thoughts your pattern of material uh, com- composition you are this strange loop You're, they all say different things but it's it's really similar the, the overarching theme is that you are a pattern. That's what makes you who you are. And uh, Josh talks about that in the book. And he, he brings up this problem, this this challenge of construction. Like, how, how do you construct consciousness? And then that turns into a constraint on theories of mind. Like, you have to be able to explain this thing. So then uh, bef- before we started recording here, Josh was, was telling me about this this acronym that I'm really excited about. So um Josh, why don't, you, why don't you lay out the acronym for us so we can see sure. like where, where we're going in this combo? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, great. So um, one of the things I'm interested in is this question, how do you construct a conscious being? Mm. Uh, And this is part of the general question about like, how did I come to be? And this is one of those questions that can just sort of startle you when it, it, if you just think about it afresh, it's like, okay, reality includes me. Yeah. What? How, how, how did that happen? Right. And, and it's one of those things where if you start to investigate, um, how to construct a being like yourself, uh, it doesn't get easier. Uh, Mm. in, in my experience, and this is a track that many theorists who are working in this field would testify to it, it becomes. Uh, you discover a larger minefield of different problems. And so these problems lead to what I call the construction challenge, which is the challenge of how to construct a being like us. And I wanted an acronym to organize 
all the different problems that I'm aware of in sort of a simple way. So the acronym is CUP. CUP is the container for all the different problems. And so the C stands for the contents of consciousness. So to produce a being like me, we've got to figure out how to produce the different qualities or contents we find in our own consciousness, thoughts, mm -hmm. feelings, intentions, uh, maybe a sense of self or sense of self-worth, uh, you know, having a plan in my mind. What is that? A mental image of dragons <laughs> that has to be constructed uh, because those are things that are contents of consciousness that appear to exist. So if we want to construct a conscious being, we have to see how to construct that. Um, and then the second one is you for unities of consciousness. And I think we're going to be talking a bit about this today as we talk about patternism, um, because a lot of the different discussions about how to produce conscious beings focus in on, on the C part, the constructing of the qualities of consciousness. Yeah. There's less discussion, especially in the popular sphere, on the unities of consciousness and even understanding what those are. So we'll talk a bit about that, I'm yeah. sure. And then P for the powers of consciousness, um, the power to form an intention and then for that intention to make a difference uh, into the world leads to a set of different challenges there. And I would say that um, all the different theories of consciousness out there on the market, they divide into two broad categories, uh, theories on which the mindless is first. So there's mindless particles Everything else is made out of that. And then theories on which um, mind is first. So there's some kind of conscious being at the foundation of reality. And then everything else can be explained or unfolded in terms of that. And all the different particular theories can branch out of those two main theories. Hmm. And the reason why I'm interested in those two main theories is because they supply different resources for the cup. Yeah. For solving the construction challenge or the construction problem. Yeah. And and I would say that if you, if people can just really understand all the different problems within the cup, that's going to equip them, no matter what theory they arrive at, um, it's going to equip them to, to fill out their own theory in a way that is really taking into account all the different data and all the different considerations yeah. that people are, are thinking about today. Oh, man, it's so good. Um, okay, so I've been thinking a lot about this because of artificial intelligence type stuff. And when you read, when I read your book uh, earlier, before the last time you came on, it's like, oh, man, it's really cool to think about like constructing consciousness and stuff. And then I talk with guys like Ben Gertzel, and it's like, oh, no, he's actually trying to construct consciousness. This is literally his program. His life's work is trying to construct consciousness. So it, it became like more and more relevant, not just a cool thought experiment, but like, oh, there's people trying to do this. Um, so I actually think this could be really helpful, maybe in helping people form their theory of mind, like you said, but but also yeah. like, hey, these are some constraints that all of us have to figure out, especially if you're an AI engineer or theorist. Like you, these are problems that if you could think about them and how you might solve them, uh, you might be able to go and make some consciousness. You know, maybe Absolutely. maybe not, but 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 maybe. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you can understand these sort of conceptual constraints. It can narrow the pathway yeah. for where to go in constructing consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So it has um, a very practical application. Totally. And I, and I notice even looking at the, the cup, um, I, I noticed that a lot of folks focus on the contents of consciousness and they look at like uh, knowledge graphs, meta graphs, hyper graphs, where they're, they're linking a bunch of, man, I don't even know if you can, I, I want to use quotation marks when I call it knowledge, because I'm not sure that it actually is knowledge, mm -hmm. but it's like a, it's a knowledge graph. And, and, from this, uh, 
the the thing is supposed to like emerge out through like a um it like emerges out of the program and that would be like the self maybe uh, they don't use mm-hmm. these these types of terms but it's you can see by looking at this acronym that one or two are focused to the neglect of the others and i think the unity is actually probably the biggest one where it's like oh, it'll it'll work itself out you know if it starts behaving like a conscious being then it, it probably just will be um mm-hmm. so i think that one's going to be super duper helpful um yeah how, how do you want to jump into this man which one do you think well, is is a good yeah, starting if point i can just say something that kind of frames kind of how yeah, i'm please. thinking about this what i've noticed is that sometimes people will kind of become quick to say on this theory consciousness emerges mm-hmm. but on this theory over here consciousness cannot emerge my own view is that when we're talking about contents of consciousness like thoughts yeah uh, the feeling of love um, those things do emerge okay the question isn't whether they emerge yeah uh, as i see it the question is uh what kind of material allows their emergence so if we want to build an artificial intelligent system that doesn't just have the functional aspects of spitting out information that's useful to us, mm-hmm. but also has a conscious experience of loving what it's doing. You know, chat GPT not only gives us information, but it experiences from a first person perspective, mm. joy. Okay. Yeah. Let's say we want to accomplish that. Well, it's possible to make joy because here we have joy. I mean, joy does come from a certain material or something yeah and i say material in a generic way just to refer to whatever it is the yeah. the stuff out of which joy comes so but what kind of material can produce that right and not any material can do that for example i don't think that you can take mental images in your mind and organize them to produce um how do i put this joy that is exemplified by those images so those mm-hmm. images are having joy. It's like those images might bring me joy. Right, okay? right, 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 right. They might bring me joy, but can the images themselves have their own joy? You say, mm. no, that's a category mistake. The images are the wrong material for joy to emerge from them. Yeah. Or numbers are the wrong material for joy to emerge from them. So there are these conceptual questions that, that can guide us to yeah. look at, okay, what kind of material can help us? And I just want to say, this works in tandem, I think, with our empirical sciences. The empirical sciences are giving us clues also as to what kind of substances can produce um, feelings and emotions. Yeah, It's just that those empirical data points are going to leave open a range of different models. And so sometimes what happens is the conceptual considerations can help yeah. further delimit which model that's consistent with the empirical data among the different models is going to best account for the emergence of, of consciousness. And that's why we need philosophy, man. I love that. That's so, that's so good. Um, you, yeah, you make this, this helpful distinction, actually, I think in our, in our Facebook conversation, uh, through having this distinction is having consciousness, making consciousness and being conscious. Yes. And it's, it's just so, so helpful. Um, and okay. Another thing I I love my AI folks and a lot of them are new friends, so I don't want to upset them. So you guys know, I love you. Um, a lot of them are, are uber um, pragmatists and they're like, look, if it's if it's playing chess, then it's intelligent. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and, and we need a better uh, term for intelligence uh, for AI than AI. And I'm, I'm part of me is like, no, I think AI is the perfect uh, name for it. It's it's artificial intelligence. It's like mm-hmm. intelligence, but it's not. And you you have this constraint 
I randomly just found it. Uh, the constraint is this, where there are thoughts, there is a mind. And so if the a if you don't think the AI has a mind, then it's hard to say that it's actually intelligent and that there's thoughts, that there are um, contents of consciousness if there is no consciousness. So again, I think that's like really, really helpful in even just theorizing about AI. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that before we jump in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I do think that you could argue in the other direction, you could say it looks like the silicon chips are displaying functional aspects of thoughts. Yeah. And maybe we understand thoughts in terms of their functional aspects. And then you say, you know what? You can't have thoughts without a mind. Yeah. Thoughts exist in a mind. And in my book, I mean, I give arguments for that. That's not just an assumption I make. Yeah. But let's say that you buy those arguments, right? Well, then you could say, well, then this is evidence that these chips, once they have the functional aspects of thoughts, they also have a mind, mm -hmm. right? And, and before offering some of the challenges. Um, so there, there are a few things that there are sort of three things that I, I hope to accomplish. Yeah. So first thing I want to motivate um, this kind of patternist or functionalist um, yeah. patternism, you could think of that as a form of functionalism where you can analyze at qualities of consciousness in terms of their functional uh, activities. Yeah. And if you can do that, then that could explain how consciousness could sort of arise out of mindless chips. Right. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. mind itself arises out of mindless chips to have consciousness. Yeah. And I want to say a little bit to motivate that, because I think that's a very important position um, in, in the philosophy of mind and, and sort of some of the reasons that motivate that. And then I want to offer uh, some, let, let's say, some ways in which I actually myself think that uh, I, I would sort of integrate a, a functionalism in my own view mm. and then okay. make a distinction to explain where. There's an aspect of functionalism that I think is um, has problems. Yeah. Right? If that yeah. makes sense. So those are like the three things that I, I want to do, yeah. because I think sometimes if, if I go too quick to talking about my problems, we're going to skate over some key distinctions that yeah. will explain how functionalism, I think, is actually very helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you do you do a great job of that, too, uh, even in in contrary positions or, or rival positions. And you're saying, here's how. Um, I think we can use this or here's how I think they're getting something right because yes. they're, they're not, they're not dumb. You know, they've been, maybe they say some things that intuitively look crazy uh, upon first glance, but you're like, this, this person wrote a whole book on this. This person wrote the Oxford, you know, whatever on this, they, they are smart people. They, they have, they're onto something, but maybe they're not There's seeing no the same thing. There. Right. That, yeah. Um, yeah. Josh, real quick. So, so I, it just in my head, the way I'm conceptualizing things, I think of patternism is like a broad a broader scope where it's like the you are a pattern and then it could be like functionalism or uh, you know role functionalism or realizer functionalism or whatever you know um analytic or machine function or just different theories are um in your head do you think maybe is functionalism broader how, how are you well, thinking maybe, about the, yeah, yeah. It, it probably could go either way depending on how broad your notion of function okay. is sure oh yeah yeah um, yeah um but to me what what the the idea here is just that there's a certain state of stuff and that that state if it has a um, particular pattern where you know one way that i think about this is in terms of state a to state b to state c and that mm -hmm. could form a pattern and yeah. and that could also be analyzed in terms of, of a function so i'm sort of thinking of these as susceptible to the same broad scale analyses if yeah. that makes sense yeah um yeah. And, and I have some pieces here to just kind of like illustrate Love maybe this. what would motivate a sort of patternist view. 
Um, so the idea here is like, let's say that these are your building blocks that mm -hmm. you're going to work with and you want to build a conscious being. And let's get specific. Let's imagine you want to build a being that is intending to imagine a unicorn. Yeah. Okay. That's so, um, and we're going to stipulate that these, the, these things individually are mindless mm -hmm. and they're essentially mindless. So they can't themselves have a mind. They can't be conscious. They can't, this can't have a thought. They can't have an intention, can't have an image, nothing mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. This same thing, right? So if these are our building blocks, then a question is how could thoughts, images, intentions arise, right? Yeah. And there are different ways that we might answer this three broad theories. One theory would be to say they can't arise. It's a kind of a limitivist theory that there are no intentions or no thoughts. There's no images. They can't arise. Um, a second theory is no, they can arise and we give a reductive analysis of what yeah. they are, mm -hmm. what a thought is, what an intention is, is going to be analyzed in terms of known properties of these mindless things, known yeah. properties. Yeah. So let's say that one of the known properties is that they have a position in space and they have a, um, a changing of position in space. So they have motion, right? And then we can start to build up more complex properties out of these properties. So let's say this is A and this is B. So A and B are intrinsically mindless, okay? But extrinsically, they have different positions in space, different motions, Yeah. okay? And maybe they have motions that end up forming some, some kind of a pattern. Maybe they end up kind of bumping and coming out and then bumping and then coming out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we have something that we can describe. Let's call this the bumping pattern. Yeah. Okay. So now this opens up a theoretical space for a hypothesis, which is let's say that the intention to think about unicorns, that intention, mm -hmm is reduced to or analyzed in terms of this, this, the known properties of these mindless things. Okay. One advantage of this is now we're, we're analyzing something that's known, which is intentions in our own mind in terms of other things that are known. And so this is great because if we can analyze one thing that's known in terms of other things that are known, we don't have to posit extra things. We don't have yeah. to posit ghosts, immaterial substances, yeah. gods, you know, stay away from that. That's magical stuff. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. And you don't even need people. new emergent laws at a, at a higher level, right? Cause we're not, we're not there yet. Yeah. We're not there yet. Yeah. Because just to say the three views, the eliminativism that eliminates the consciousness, the reductionism, which we're talking about now. So patternism being a form of reductionism. And then third, there's a non-reductive uh, view where, um, well, there's different versions of it, but if these are our ingredients, the idea is that these things hit each other, they form this pattern. And it's not that the pattern is the intention mm -hmm. to think about unicorns. It's that this pattern on its own makes the intention yeah. of thinking about unicorns, grounds it or explains or produces it in some yeah. way. Yeah. Right. So those are the three views. And it's important to realize that the patternist view is not an eliminativist view. The patternist view is not uh, an, an, a non-reductive view. It's a reductive view. Yeah. And it's, it's reducing conscious intentions to certain patterns of uh, mindless bits of mm -hmm. reality yeah right and so I, I would say that's my understanding of, of the view uh at least one salient formulation of the view and that one motivation this isn't the only motivation 
Um, but one motivation, I'll give two motivations, which isn't to say there's only two, but one motivation is that it, um, it explains known things in terms of known things, Yeah, which is beautiful yeah. because in general, a theory that explains the known in terms of the known is going to have a higher probability than a theory that's going to uh, posit extra things beyond necessity. Yeah. And it sounds less ad hoc and just all sorts of theoretical virtues on its side. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, okay. So, um, I'm wondering, Josh, if there's, uh, if there might be two versions, uh, that the, the patternist could go for, like the one would be like a, maybe a hardware view. And this would say like, we're going to reduce it down to the hardware bits. And these are, you know, maybe the silicon chip or whatever, uh, they have all sorts of crazy chips nowadays. It's wild. Um, or the software view where it's like, yeah, maybe it's not, we're not going to reduce it down to the hardware, but at the software level, at the virtual computer level, that's the, that's what the thing really is. Um, do you, do you think that those two can like stand on their own or maybe do they all reduce back down to the I hardware? Think they reduce, okay. They reduce to the, the same, um, basic idea because I mean, if you think about, you know, what is software, hmm. if you have a program that's running on one computer, yeah. And then you run the same program on another computer. What are you doing? You're running the same pattern, the same type. So mm -hmm. just to illustrate this, let's say this. you've got these little bits are your bits of hardware mm -hmm. and they're forming this pattern right here. Okay. That's the pattern. And then, uh, okay. I wish I had different colors, but I'm pulling <laughs> up two more. Yeah. These are, these are different than these. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then let's say that, uh, these get destroyed. They're gone. They're replaced now with these different hardware, but same pattern, mm -hmm. um, same software. Yeah same software. So yeah. I think that, um, but ultimately that pattern that is the software pattern is a pattern that the hardware has. Yeah. The hardware has the software pattern. Yeah. The pattern is the software. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. It's, um, so it, the, the analog would be like, um, oh, we mentioned it earlier, uh, Kim's problem, uh, of reducing the down. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Did, you, did you see the analog there or is that stretching? Yeah, that I, I want to kind of hold on to that. I want to say okay, that cool. one. Cool, cool, this will cool. be one of the challenges um, to a pure patternist view. Yeah. Um, but before we get to challenges, I want to do some more to motivate it. Yeah, I, I want it. your audience who are patternists to feel like, oh, okay, yeah, that that does seem like what would motivate my view. Good, um, that's good. And, and this isn't just like a game so that I can make them feel like I understand them only to now object to them. Yeah. Because like I said, Something else I want to do is tell you why I also accept a um, so some of the functionalist insight into my own view. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the first first kind of motivation is that it allows us to have a simpler view. Mm -hmm. So we're explaining known things in terms of known things. Don't have to posit something else. Um, second, it seems to fit with observations in neuroscience where you have correlations between brain states, yeah. um, axons firing in certain ways. And thoughts. Um, if if you hit your head, it's going to affect your mind. My daughter yeah. Chloe, she got a concussion. She's recovered. She's done very well with that, but it definitely affected um, her mentality for a while. There, she was uh, kind of having to do some things to kind of restore. Um, she would get these extra scary thoughts, and oh, wow. so we kind of we worked through that. But there's definitely like that correlate. Obviously, you know, there's the correlation, yeah. right? The neural Which correlates would, of consciousness, yeah, NCCs. For everyone on the inside, if you can, if you can say NCCs, then you're an insider. You're cool. You, everyone likes you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got <laughs> neural correlates of consciousness. So that, that that's an empirical evidence, and it is evidence because what you have here 
is correlation. And people sometimes say, hey, correlation is not causation. That's like right. a meme or a cliche or something yeah. like this. I actually don't like that kind of response because correlation can be evidence for causation. But here the idea is that we're not even talking about causation. We're talking about there's correlation between these things forming a certain pattern and you having a certain thought. Right. And so the correlation is evidence of identity, of reduction. Mm -hmm. What it is to have that thought is for those things to be in that pattern. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is evidence, real evidence. It's like if you go out and you see the morning star um, and then the evening star, and then they have these correlations, uh, you, might, you might think that they're different. Uh, the morning star is different from the evening star, but you notice these systematic correlations between them about the timing of when they rise and, and you do some calculations and you might say, hey, you know what? We can explain the correlation in terms of it's Venus. It's one thing. Yeah, that's correlated in this yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, so that's important. And that is real evidence, I think, for patternism. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's, a, that's a good reason. Like, so if somebody is a patternist and they, they're like, yeah, it seems to simplify my view, explains known in terms of known. It fits with neuroscience. Yeah. Um, and that's a reason I want to say that's, that's a good reason. Yeah. You know, that you probably should be a patternist. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's really good. Um, yeah. Or is it, is it, is it motivated? Do you think is this? Uh, well, I, um, there's another motivation that I had in my mind and now it's <laughs> circling away. Um, yeah. if it comes back, I mean, there are all sorts of different reasons that you might have, um, for reducing consciousness down. Yeah. Um, one kind of reason has to do with maybe problems with the alternatives. So yeah. problems with eliminativism uh, problems. I, I think this was the third one that, um, actually could be turned around into a challenge for the patternist, but, but could also be used as an argument for some kind of reduction and yeah. has been philosophers take this route, which has to do with the explanatory completeness of physics. Yeah. So the idea is that if, if these are our particles and these are the fundamental bits of reality and they're mindless, okay, those are some ifs. Yeah. But let's say, you know, we have the fundamental particles. We don't have reason to posit something that's not mindless at the base of reality. Mm -hmm. And we're not panpsychists. So we sort of have that intuition. These particles are mindless. Yeah. And physics sort of tells us how they operate. Then those particles pull the strings on, on everything. Yes. But now you might think, hey, but it seems like my mental life actually makes a difference. Like if I want, if I intend to raise my hand, I raise my hand. Or if I intend to imagine unicorns. I just did that right now. I'm not lying to you. I just was intending to imagine unicorns and I got an imagination of a unicorn going. Yeah. How did that work for you? It, it was like good. It was good. I was making sure I could do it. Yeah. I was making yeah. Sure. You got to You have to do, make sure you did it. So you do the experiment. Um, but now this leads to kind of a problem because if you're able to, through your mind, make a, a difference into the world, like you can raise your hand or you can form mm an intention that actually leads to another mental state of imagining unicorns. See, there's this causal sequence initiated by mental states, right? How, how is that possible if what really initiates everything are non-mental yeah. particles, yeah. okay? And it's interesting because um, Frank Jackson, he sort of cites this kind of argument. Uh, I shouldn't say sort of, I mean, he does cite this kind of argument as a reason that later in his career, he ends up reducing mental states 
to physical states. Yeah. The idea here is that if we can if we can say that what it is to have the intention to think about unicorns or to raise your hand just is a certain pattern of particles. Yeah. Then there's no problem saying that one pattern of particles leads to another pattern of particles. This is actually a consequence of what physics would tell us mm -hmm. that there are certain patterns that lead to other patterns and our laws of physics tell us how that works. Yeah. So basically what's going on is the mental is a macro level description of huge patterns, huge functions, huge organizations. So it's a mental level description of fundamentally mindless things. But the mental level description is really part of the causal chain, just yeah. as like a waterfall is part of the causal chain at the macro level of causing splashes down at the at the base. Yeah. So that would be a third motivation for that, that's so for he he when he came on the show, he talked about these patterns of similarity and difference. And to be honest with everyone, like, man, it was really hard for me to understand what he was talking about. But I think I, I think it's just starting to click for me, actually, because of what you just said and because of patterns and that I'm gonna have to go back and listen and talk to him again. That's so helpful. I think uh, maybe a, uh, one more because now I want to help uh, motivate too. Um, See, you're on board. You're, this, it's kind of fun, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think one of one of them that I've I've heard before is they will acknowledge the um, the difficulty of of grounding identity over time um, on a, on a purely physicalist uh, notion of your the self because it's like no yeah. you know your your material has changed out unless you want to just go in for like the couple neurons that don't change out then that's really what you are but no it seems like you're more than that so it's the pattern that's still there, even though new material comes in right. and sloughed off, it, it's still holding this pattern. And, and yeah, the pattern does change. And that kind of explains why you're a different person now with different desires and motivations than you were before. Cause the, the pattern is kind of an ever shifting thing, even though it can survive sloughing off and bringing in different materials. Oh, I, lo I love that. So just to imagine here, we've got these two things they are going into the bumping pattern, yeah. right? And then let's imagine that like one of these things leaves but another one sort of comes in and starts bumping. Yeah. If you, you are the bumping pattern, that's what you are. Yeah. Then yeah. you can continue to exist. This is what you're talking about. You can persist from one moment to the next, as long as the pattern remains intact, even mm -hmm. as you lose your particles and new particles come in, yeah. you continue to exist. And so this is a, a helpful uh, solution to this problem of persistence. How do you persist through changing parts? The answer is uh, you are a pattern that persists through changing parts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you, I, you could also <clears throat> just kind of pulling from the, the, um, motivations of functionalism, you could say, well, look at, um, we're made of different stuff than the alien. So you, you just pull in like multiple realizability arguments and you're like, look, I, this alien has pain, even though it's, it's a cloud organism or something and I'm made of carbon, but yeah, as long as that, that pattern's being realized in that cloud being, then you can ascribe pain states to him, which it looks like he's in in pain, or some, you know, or if he's telling you he's in in pain, if if cloud uh, aliens are he's or she's, but you can attribute, yeah, because you can have multiply uh, realized pain states, and we always go with pain. We should probably do joy. You always talk about joy, but it's yeah, always joy. the pain Let's focus state. on joy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pain. Um, yeah, that's right. The philosophers always talk about sea fibers firing and pain. Right. That's right. <laughs> Philosophy is painful, man. I don't know. Um, okay, so we we got some motivation, and if new ones come up, you know, we can just keep tossing them in. Um, 
But I'm I'm with you and I'm really intrigued, man. I'm really intrigued to see how you're gonna pull it in because I've I've thought similar things myself about functionalism, at least, where I'm like, mm, it's kind of cool, man. I kind of like some of this stuff. I don't think it's everything, but it, I'm interested to see where you're going with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So let me say a little bit about um, kind of how I would incorporate some kind of pattern or functional aspects into my own view. Um, so first of all, I do think that conscious states um, have functional aspects. Mm. Um, and, and a metaphor, I actually got this but way back when I was at Notre Dame, a student gave me this metaphor when we were talking about functionalism in class. Yeah. And it just stuck with me. I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to use this. And I actually use this in, in the book um, when I talk about how you could have something that has function, even if it isn't the same thing as function. So oh, the, right. the example is a key that has a certain shape. Yeah. So the shape of the key gives the key a certain function to be able to unlock a door. Because it has that shape, it also has a certain function. Um, and you could even think about this in terms of a pattern as well, that there's a certain pattern of behavior that when you put the key into this door and turn it, the door unlocks. Yeah. Okay. But the point here is that the shape of the key is not the same thing as the function of the key. It's that the shape enables or has a function. Yeah. And that's just importantly different. I mean, a lot of philosophy of mind involves careful analytical surgery to see, okay, this is different from this so that we can appreciate um, how all the different pieces could possibly go together. Yeah. And I want to just right away affirm that I do think that every conscious state has functional aspects. And this is in fact, why we can witness empirically when we look at brains, um, functional connections between conscious states and material brain states. Yeah. Um, this is one of the reasons is because the conscious states have functional aspects in the brain. And the yeah. brain also has functional aspects connected to the consciousness. So that's yeah. the first thing. And just leaves it aside, okay, is, is the conscious state itself a function? Well, we have to be careful with our language because I think it has functional aspects, but that's not the same as saying that it is literally nothing but inputs and outputs. Yeah. Even if it causes inputs and outputs. So, um, yeah, can you can you gloss the key analogy in terms of uh, if the key was just a function? Like, what would that look like if the key was the function? It didn't just have a functional um, aspect. So good. Right, right, right. So that would be like if the shape of the key, because I was focused on just an aspect of the key, the shape of yeah. the key. Yeah. Um, if the shape of the key is the function of the key. Yeah. And uh, maybe there's different functions, but let's just kind of fill in. Let's say one function is that when the key is um, in this state, like poked into the key, a certain keyhole yeah. and then turned and then the door is pushed and the door opens. Yeah. Okay. The, the shape of the key is um, allowing that functional uh, relationship to open yeah. the door. Yeah. But to say that the shape is the function is to say that here's what that shape is. It is numerically identical to a yes. set of inputs and outputs that... Yes. In this state, then this happens. In this state, yeah. then this happens. Yeah. So a function is just, you could think of it as an ordered, um, a set of ordered pairs. Oh, wow. yeah. I was about to ask that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it an event? Is it an event or like a, I'm, I always have a hard time with this and I haven't heard a whole ton, but like a function, um, the key, the shape of the key has this like potential to function as opening a door when turned a certain way. Yeah. But is that, isn't, that's like an event that happens but it's like got this potential to be used in that particular event. 
So I think of good question. I think of the events as the inputs and outputs. Okay. So they compose the function. So the gotcha. function tells you um, which events happen given certain input events. Okay. Okay. And so you could, or you know, or states. I mean, we can talk about states, about states affairs. Yeah. 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 We can get deep into the metaphysical uh, distinctions here, <laughs> but roughly, uh, a function is just an, an, uh, a set of ordered pairs. Okay. Inputs and outputs. And then there's a further question, what are the elements of those pairs? But I, th I think you can say events are the elements of those pairs. Okay. Um, and so here, I mean, I, I would say that you can see by insight into shape mm -hmm. and insight into a function of ordered pairs yeah. that the shape of a key is not the same thing as the or set of ordered pairs. Yeah, those right. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's so obvious because the, yeah, the function, the set of ordered pairs needs to have the key in it, but the key isn't the whole thing. And that right. thing isn't like a material. I, I don't know. That's why you get into the metaphysics of it. And that's why I could see someone saying this is pedantic, but it's like, well, it, events to me don't, aren't physical things. Maybe they incorporate physical things. Right. But the event is like a happening. It's something like it's hard to even express, but it's not the same thing. And, and even if you call it physical, you know, because it has physical right. contents, physical event, the point is, is that an event that includes the key in a certain state is not the same thing as right. the shape of the key. Right, right. That's good, man. And again, the event is just one element of an ordered pair yeah. and the function is all the, the set of all the ordered pairs. Yeah. So the function, usually the way the philosophers talk about this is the functional aspects are um, complex. And so one of the kind of arguments actually against a functionalism, a strict functionalism. Yeah. So Jaguar Kim in his book, Physicalism or Something Near Enough, he makes this argument for the near enough. The near enough part is the part where he says there are qualitative aspects of consciousness. Um, you know, the, the, the feeling of thinking about giraffes is different from the functional, the, the ordered pairs um, aspect mm -hmm. of thinking about the, the functional impact of that thought. So Kim makes that argument and he says the qualitative aspect of consciousness is included in functions, let's say, but not the same thing yeah. as functions. Yeah. And one of his arguments for that is that the function itself, and this takes that sort of analytical surgery, you have to kind of like focus in on, on okay, a function is ordered pairs, a set of ordered pairs, that's complex. In way in a way that um, a quality of intending something or quality of feeling love um, or even let's go back to the key analogy yeah. the shape of the key yeah. is not complex in that same way yeah and the idea is that you can sort of see this by awareness of the items in question a kind of direct awareness so we're not in an opaque context where we're guessing like. Well, for all we know, you know, it could be like water and H2O. <laughs> well, it's because we don't have that direct conscious access to the molecular structure. Yeah. Uh, we're aware of its effects and how it, we experience it. But when it comes to consciousness, that's where we have arguably the direct conscious access to at least some aspects yeah. of consciousness. And and um, I'm, I don't want to jump the gun, but it seems like this the, the unity problem is right here in the same vicinity where it's like, no, these things are complex. These are, uh, you know, these these sets are, are complex where like the consciousness seems simple or, or do you not, do you not go for that? Well, maybe not as complex as the function. So yeah. 
I, I want to come to the to the unity aspect because you're right. That's um, we're we're going we're going to talk about how there's there is a deep unity problem that I think functionalism on its own isn't going to solve. Okay. Um, but even before we look at that, yeah. I almost just kind of want to highlight a more fundamental idea that Jaguan Kim was highlighting, which is more in the C category uh, of the contents of consciousness. Yeah. How do you yeah. get the contents of consciousness? And the idea here is that we want to distinguish between different aspects of reality okay so i think it's just for me it's helpful to have have the examples here so if this thing's forming that pattern of going back and forth like this okay i think that we can see by insight into the pattern and insight into the color of these things that the pattern is not the same as the color yeah even if the color plays a functional role even if the color is causing the pattern even if the pattern is somehow causing the color to appear mm -hmm. to us but we can see that the color and the pattern aren't the same thing. Yeah. And Kim is going to say the same thing about certain qualitative aspects of consciousness that we can sort of see by direct conscious awareness of images of dragons. Yeah. Feeling love. Now, it's helpful to use examples so it's not just abstract. And you got to do the work, like focus on that image. Yeah. Is there any qualitative aspect of the image that's different from a pattern mm. that you, you can tell a difference? And, and so what may, may philosophers say, okay, it looks, it appears, there appears to be a difference. Papineau talks about the intuition of distinction, yeah. the appearance that there's a difference. Um, but before we identify the appearance of a dis difference, it's just so important to like take the time and focus in on some of these distinctions. So you can even appreciate that, hey, you know what? Maybe there's a, a, a way in which a certain understanding of knowledge is purely functional, mm -hmm. okay? Maybe we could stipulate that knowledge, according to this understanding, is the way the parts move together in certain informationally productive ways. Yeah. Um, but even after having granted that, and I'm happy to grant that, because to me, that's just a matter of semantics, that there is a notion of knowledge that chat GPT has, has okay. knowledge, has information. Okay. But that's going to leave out another, let's say, qualitative consciousness-infused notion of knowledge that I think that I have access to in first person conscious awareness. Mm, yeah. And so this would be my kind of first of several different sort of challenges to a purely patternist or functionalist account, Yeah, which is that I think, I guess I, I agree with Jaguan Kim that the function leaves out these qualitative aspects of consciousness that I think we can be aware of from a first person perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, a real quick, uh, okay. So for everyone listening, I forgot about you guys. Uh, Josh has been using things that look like plastic, uh, tacks maybe from like tic-tac-toe and they're yellow. So just picture that if you need to go back and listen, uh, when he's talking about that, that's what's going on. Um, it's really actually super helpful. So maybe you want to watch, but I'm thinking, and, and uh, I've been moving them together to form this pattern, right? right? right. Yeah. yeah they go ahead. Bounce go off ahead. each other. Super good. It's actually yeah. kind of hypnotizing. Uh, so I'm wondering, so, um, yeah, we got this direct awareness of our consciousness and it, and we have this distinction that we can make. I wonder if someone would make that um, a similar claim. And maybe the problem with this claim is that it's third person, not first person. But saying right now I'm looking at you on the screen and um, that's like the software going on. But I know that it's reducible to the hardware uh, of you know my computer or something. And so if that's reducible to the hardware, like we said earlier, then why can't the picture that I'm imagining of a dragon be reducible to the pattern of uh, neurons or, or something firing? 
Yeah, good. So here it's helpful to distinguish between being reducible to and being based on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's good. so going back, and I, I guess not everybody can see this, but it's just so helpful for me to use the hypnotizing um, mm -hmm. examples I have here with these little bits of reality that are just in this pattern of going back and forth, mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth. And the reason why the the going the pattern is not reducible to the hardware or the parts is for the reason that Parker that you mentioned earlier yeah. to solve the problem of persistence. So it can lose a part right. and then swap out and get a new part and have the same pattern, the same software. Mm -hmm. And and so the idea here is that um, there's not a reduction in terms of identity. It's rather what's going on is that the pattern is based on the hardware. Gotcha. Okay. It's based on it. The hardware is what's caught up in the pattern. Mm -hmm. And, I, and here I'm not challenging that. So I hope that it's clear yeah. that what I'm challenging by my first argument is that the conscious experience is itself the pattern. Yeah. So I'm not challenging the, the idea that software depends on hardware. And if somebody says, well, maybe the consciousness is not the same as a pattern. It's not even the same as software in that sense, but it still depends on the hardware mm -hmm. of the brain, let's say. Um, then that's going to be a different view. And I'm at, everything that I'm saying so far is actually consistent with that. Okay. Because like ultimately I want to say that, yes, your consciousness does depend on hardware, hmm. right? Because Parker, my, oh, yeah. my view is that the hardware that gives rise to your consciousness is what I call a conscious substance. Right, dude. That was so good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the kind of being that can produce thoughts and feelings and these sorts of things. It's the kind of being that you and I are. Yeah. Um, but here, just to kind of slow us down and focus in just on functionalism or patternism, the idea, this kind of reductive idea, the first challenge um, that I'm raising is that I think there's a qualitative aspect of consciousness mm -hmm. that we can be aware of. And it really does help to focus on the examples of the, the aboutness of thoughts. Yeah. The, the, not, not a functional aboutness, but the aboutness when you're thinking about zebras and you focus in on that aboutness in your mind mm -hmm. and you you consider what that property is um the structure of the thought about zebras that thought has a structure like zebras exist has a certain structural relationship between the concept of zebra the concept of existence and those go together um the the feeling of thinking about that the consciousness of that okay these these are qualitative aspects i call these um bits of first person data. Yeah. I love that. So th these are bits of data that you get from per first person awareness. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that first, that these are real, if we're not elementivists, we could go back and revisit elementivism and some philosophers do. I mean, some philosophers, their journey as they would report it is once they get a certain far into the philosophy of mind, they go from reduction to, ah, let's eliminate it. Yeah. Because the idea is that, well, you can't really re reduce the qualitative aspects of consciousness to non-qualitative quantitative aspects of um, just spatial things in, in, in the brain, like shape, motion, velocity, these, these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so if you can't reduce it, then maybe the qualitative aspects are more like illusions or not really there. Yeah. I love that right. in the book, Josh, that you talk about eliminativists. Um, they actually do take this stuff seriously. They actually do take uh, qualia seriously. And so seriously, they don't think it's there. 
And and I never I never thought of that because I always thought like Illuminifs, that's my bad guys, you know, we're gonna hammer them. And you're like, no, they they take it seriously in a different way than the eliminative or uh, the reductionists. Reduction. Yes. And here's why they might seem like they're together, and here's where they do agree, but they disagree pretty strongly as well. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Well, it is cool because one to me it, it's fun. It's interesting because I think the eliminativists have a certain insight. One of the things that eliminativists say who eliminate consciousness. Okay, there's different forms of elimination. Mm -hmm. You can eliminate thoughts. But let's just say for now, um, sort of the the experiential quality um, of awareness. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so you can eliminate that. You could say it doesn't exist. Well, one thing that motivates eliminativism um, for some eliminativists is that is that our folk ontology, our common way of thinking about ourselves, isn't actually true. So we sort of commonly think of ourselves as being having feelings and pains. Um, and having intentions and having consciousness, but that that's not actually true. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because I think what the eliminativists also recognize is that our common way of thinking about feelings and pains and consciousness is going to include these qualitative aspects. And there the eliminativists are saying, okay, let's, let's accept that let's say that the common folk way of characterizing consciousness is a correct way of characterizing consciousness if it were to exist. Right. So they're taking that very seriously. And then they're saying, but we don't find anything like that just from analyzing uh, functions of, of, of brain parts. Yeah. And so that's where they would eliminate. It. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I lost where we're at though. in the, in the logical oh, here, progression. Here's where we're at. Okay. Yeah. So, Big picture. So we offered three or four motivations yeah. for functionalism, and those are good motivations. And if people are watching this are functionalists or patternists for those reasons, totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, second, uh, I actually think consciousness has functional aspects. And I think that this is important to understand how the neural correlates of consciousness connect. Mm -hmm. um, and now third, we're looking at arguments against a purely functionalist analysis. So I say there's more to consciousness than function. And I have a set of different challenges. And the first challenge is a challenge from what we might call the sort of qualitative aspects mm -hmm. of consciousness that I think we can be directly aware of. Yeah. And what I want to just say at this point is that now there's a debate over whether um, <clears throat> this intuition about the qualitative aspects of consciousness applies to reality. Mm -hmm. And even if we're not eliminativists, okay, we could, as Papineau suggests, um, say that this sort of intuition of distinction is sort of, it's misleading in the way that maybe Lois Lane gets sort of tricked into thinking that Clark Kent is different from Superman. Yeah. You know, she sees these different modes of the one guy and she gets misled to thinking that there are two guys there. It's just two different modes. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there's a sort of avenue of debate and exploration about the idea that, well, maybe what's going on here is that there's actually two different sort of modes or ways of accessing the same reality, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pattern. Um, so there's a first person way of accessing myself, my consciousness, my thoughts, my images. And then there's a sort of scientific third person way of accessing the same reality. Mm -hmm. And then what we discover is that it's it's a function or it's a pattern. Yeah. Yeah, that's a way of kind of responding to that first um, kind of challenge to the, the functionalist. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I, I, I probably should have asked this sooner. I want to just toss it in really quick, but uh, some people make a distinction between like functionalism and maybe like computationalism. And they'll say like, well, uh, and, I, and especially the AI folks and the mathy folks and the physics folks, they'll say, and this is why I think patternism is this broad thing that can capture all of these, but um, they'll say like, you're, you're a comp computation. And I say like, well, is the self a computation? And they'll say, yeah, the, the self is just a, a computation. I say, well, is it like grounded in the brain or rooted or supervenient in the brain? They go, yeah. And I go, is the brain a computation? And they go, yeah. And they just say like, it's computation all the way down. Some have suggested that to me. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody. Does. Yeah. Right. And so um, I'm thinking that uh, this applies uh, like if, if in the, in critiquing and um, affirming some stuff about patternism, I think it, it equally applies to like a computational theory of mind that, because it, that seems like a computation seems like an event as well. Right. Or a, um, a dyad or I forgot what the, the terminology we used. Yeah. I'm thinking of broadly relational theories yeah. where you have nodes in relations to each other. Yeah. And so, you know, when I talk about functions, I talk about an ordered set of pairs, ordered set of pairs, um, but you, you could have a function that, um, Sorry, a set of ordered pairs is, is what I meant to say there. Okay. Um, a set of inputs and outputs, but you could you could have more nodes. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be pairs, could, right? Yeah, it could be you know, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so you could get more complex nesting of nodes and relations. Right. But it's easy so to like, think about like, pairs. Yeah, it's like the if it applies yeah. to pairs, it applies to all the other dyads and triads and quadrads. And, yeah. Yeah. The, the, these ideas, um, yeah, absolutely apply across the board because if you have a qualitative aspect of consciousness that's not reduced to ordered pairs, for the same reason, it's not reduced to you know three uh, things and nodes together. Yeah. Josh, um, that's that's like a <clears throat> that's a a fascinating point. To say like, hey, look, if this applies and here, it applies everywhere. But it, it kind of also brings out your point about the construction problem where it's like, well, yeah, that's too simple because two is too simple. And you're like, well, how about three? No, that's too simple. What about 28? And you're like, maybe. And like, no, 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 no. It's the same exact thing, just just more of it. But it doesn't look like if it if it's not going to create a qualitative consciousness here, I need to know why it's going to work when you add 200 of them bouncing together in a pattern you know yeah. and it's right, i think right, that's right. a good yeah. point you, yeah. if you have one object it is a mindless bit and you can imagine it's colorless as well mm -hmm. and this object is not i don't know an image of dragons or something mm -hmm. a mental image like in your dream right yeah. yeah yeah then um you know is two of them a mental image yeah is three of them a mental image maybe you could organize them into the form of a dragon mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but is it the same thing as a mental image now, it's interesting because if there's a point at which you say it is the same thing as a mental image, and if the mental image is real, and if you have access to the intrinsic qualities of that mental image, then I'm, I'm actually kind of happy with that because um, that's completely consistent with the mind first view, mm -hmm. as long as you understand that you're, analy you're analyzing the mindless bits as themselves uh, in um, in comprising a mental thing that's actually real. Yeah. And so as long, as long as the mental thing is real, and we'll come back to the powers issue that the mental can actually make a difference, so it's not a puppet of the mindless, yeah. then th I'm, I'm happy with that. I mean, th this is where I think people could come together. I was thinking about this today again. I think people, when they mark out their positions, can sometimes quickly polarize because they're defending their positions. Yeah. 
but I actually do believe that like every position has some insight and there's a way of integrating the different positions together. So we have functional aspects. Mm -hmm. That's right. There are also qualitative aspects. That's also part of reality. Those go together. Um, there's a difference between the substratum, the stuff or the, the, the hardware, if you want to use that language yeah. and then the states of the hardware. That's yeah. good. I, I accept that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then just to understand that all those things go together. And, and what I want to just add here is that one of the problems with a purely patternist or functionalist or comp uh, com uh, computational view is this problem of how you can account for you being you when there's differences in parts coming in and out. Mm -hmm. So, and I want to just draw this out because earlier we talked about how um, the patternist can actually solve that problem by saying, hey, you're the same pattern, even if we have different parts. But what happens if your old parts that were replaced get arranged into the same uh, Yeah. What happens then? And we have to think about this. This is where the analytical surgery comes in. Because if you're going to say that you are the pattern, that's what you are. You're the pattern. Mm -hmm. Then you exist wherever that pattern exists. Right. Right. Now, if you say that you're the parts, then we have a different puzzle uh -huh. because how do you maintain your identity and your existence as new parts come in and out? If the solution to the parts problem is the pattern solution, you are the pattern, well, then you have to stay committed to that. If you, you know, we can't give up that view once we realize that, hey, the same pattern can exist um, with your original parts that were swapped out. Yeah, yeah. And so it looks like this is going to lead to a problem because Parker, if my parts go into your body and your parts go into my body, and I'm talking the atomic parts slowly, one by <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Take some time for this to happen. Let's imagine that all of them swap out. And I still have the first person perspective of being me. Now, at this point, somebody might say, well, that's an illusion. There is no you. Okay. But the patternist who's reductionist is not eliminating me. They're saying right. what I am is a pattern, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm <laughs> going to play with that. So, so then if my parts, my atomic parts go into into your body and yours go into mine. And then let's say that I, I over here, my first person self over here, um, maintain just, I'm just sitting over here, just happy. Meanwhile, you start changing your form. You're, you're wanting to imitate me more and more. And, and, <laughs> and you cut your hair the same way and everything and, and molecule for molecule, maybe some machines help with this, yeah. get those atoms arranged. So now you look just like me. Okay. You have the same pattern particles. Yeah. But from a first person vantage point, I'm not over there. I'm still over here. I'm still me over here. The individual me is over here. Yeah. And so this is where just the conceptual stuff matters so much because there's a difference I would say between the being that has the pattern. Yes. The being that has the shape, the being that has the body, the being that has the neurons um, and the pattern itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that's where I would say that, you know, what I am is, um, something that continues to be me, mm -hmm. even as my parts swap out. And even if they take the same pattern, multiply it over 10 times. So I've got 10 twins. Yeah. I, I, so, okay. I love that because, um, I've been asking, I, I always ask this question of theories of mind, uh, in, in the philosophy of mind it, uh, about, about 3d printing someone, if you could 3d print you, um, 
your your physical composition would that be you or not and if it would be you then there's two yous and i think that's kind of a, a problem i think that's a cost of the theory and i, I like i asked uh, william hasker about this if we 3d printed him would the same emergent mind emerge with the same memories and and he laughed and he said yeah and i was like well that that seems like it that might be a cost to me if you're uh, douglas hofstetter uh, strange literally his book is i am a strange loop and for a long time it's been sitting uh, underneath your book so it's like who are you really i am a strange loop and it's pretty okay it's nice. pretty wild but the same thing it's like the yeah that pattern that's a, that seems like such a hard problem because it's not just saying you have a clone that is a different it, you're it's actually you you are multiply realizable because you That's are right. it's not just pattern. a duplicate right it's the same individual so was hasker saying that it would be the same token individual? no I, he he said it would have all the same memories and everything like him okay. and we didn't get into yeah. whether or not um you know the causal history would have impacted whether those are true or false beliefs and stuff uh it was just yeah. kind of a funny thing to say but but i i, I had a problem with the memories I, I was like man i don't know if it would have the same memories as you um but yeah that was that was good times I don't think he would. And I don't know if he would say that because of like hexades or something. Um, I don't think you have to use that word. Probably if you go in for a conscious substance, it's just kind of, this is a different substance than that one, even if it has the same pattern. Um, w w would you yeah. say that or, or would you use the word hexaity? Uh I don't need a hexaity to okay. account for distinction. Okay. Um, I, I think of it as, um, well, I'm actually still kind of sorting my thoughts on, on this um, <laughs> anew, but but the view that I've had, and maybe I still have this, is just that there's a primitive uh, distinction between uh, token substances. Okay. Um, nice. Yeah, it's, it may be primitive, but still the distinction requires some causal work to create the distinction. But the it's oh, being distinct okay. is not grounded in... Ah, I, I'm, I'm thinking through this. So th there's some options on the table yeah. For, yeah. for me. But the point is, is that, that I am me and and i'm not you yeah um even if uh my pattern of particles is the same as your pattern of particles yeah and and that, so that goes I, for for yeah. uploading too right because um we're, we're doing all the techno philosophy stuff but a lot of these folks are like this is going to be great once the technological singularity happens the agi the artificial general intelligence will help us upload our consciousness into a digital world but when i think of that i think of a continuation of my conscious uh experience and they don't think of that or if they do think of that they think no it's not but it's still your pattern so it's still like i'm talking to you and i'm like is if you slip in a like in on me then that's not me anymore it's like you're talking to me but that's not me it's not my conscious it's not like my soul is attached now to the hardware it's just a, a mimicry or something it's that's scary yeah, I know. I mean, if somebody takes some atoms and assembles them to look just like me, yeah. and then those atoms start saying, hey, I'm actually conscious. And let's say that they really are conscious. Yeah. Okay, so we solve the hard problem of consciousness. Those atoms really are conscious. Um, but I'm not sort of tempted to think that like, they are me, right. like the individual me, yeah. not the duplicate yeah. type, the same type. Our language sometimes fails us here, but we have to just clarify that there's a difference between the being the same in type and being the same token individual. Yeah. And, and my argument, I mean, I, I try to argue for everything, right? <laughs> my arguments are ultimately based on, I think, observations that are based in just awareness. So I take myself to be able to be aware of myself having thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm aware of myself having certain thoughts and feelings, 
and I'm not aware of your thoughts and feelings, then you're not me. Yeah. Okay. Even if you have the same pattern, you have the same function, you have the same um, computation. Um, so, and I do think that maybe playing with AI and the technology, there are ways in which we could extend our lives and extend our consciousness and upload ourselves in some, in some way. But I just want to say that on a mind first theory, this becomes possible only because there's already right. a conscious being right. that is sustained in various forms. Yeah. But my problem is if you start with the fundamentally mindless units of reality, mindless uh, uh, circles or particles or whatever, and then you try to organize them into a certain pattern and then the pattern all by itself is the consciousness, well, then I think we're going to have this particular problem of uh, replacing our parts out. And then yeah. But um, but being distinct beings. Yeah. You. So I, I should say, even though it, we may not touch on this um, it, later in the book, you you mentioned these arrows that point to who you are, and this might help with the uh, with. Uh, okay, I'm gonna use some jargon real quick. So Josh is like a token instance of uh, human nature, um, and then if there's a bunch of him and we reproduce his pattern everywhere, those would be. Uh, he would be a type now and those would be different token instances of the type which is josh which is the original which is a token so um that probably doesn't help anyone but there's these arrows that you that you talk about the arrow of your oneness points to you as an individual the arrow of your first person perspective points to you as a center point of consciousness and the arrow yeah. of your self-awareness points to you as a self so um, we may not be able to touch on all of those but i do commend the book go read those and that might help explain why if we reproduce a bunch of uh, token instances of the type Josh, why Josh might not have first person awareness, uh, or self or, or access to all those different Josh's running around and he doesn't have this meshed up weird conscious experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, um, and those arrows, they point to the unity yes. of consciousness. Yeah. So going back to the cup, we have the contents of consciousness and, and I, and it, so the first argument then was that there are contents, qualitative contents of consciousness yeah. that aren't themselves functional. So, you know, there's a debate about that, but that's one of the arguments. The second argument is from the unity of consciousness. And I want to elaborate a little bit about this. Yeah. And then hopefully if we have time, we can talk about um, the P, which is the power of consciousness. Yeah. Because I think all three of those, the, the contents, the unity, and the power of consciousness, each bring its own kind of challenge to a purely patternist and functionalist account okay. of, of myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just to elaborate then on, on the unity of consciousness, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about how I can be me over here, even after I lose particles. Because the reason for this is that it's not just that I am a bunch of particles. Yeah. It's that I'm a unified there's a unification to my reality. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want to illustrate this because this could become so clear. And I think that the problem of constructing unities may be one of the most, if not the most challenging problems in constructing consciousness yeah. that is relatively unknown because people focus on the hard problem of constructing consciousness. And then they feel like if we can solve that, then it's just a matter of right. getting it all functionally related. Right. It's like, no, no, <laughs> I have a whole chapter on this. And the chapter talks about how functional integration is not enough right. to give us unity. So I, I want to just elaborate on this. So let's imagine that um, not all of your audience can, can see these things, those who are listening. Yeah. But I have three little bits of reality, these orange 
crosses. And let's say that each one represents a um, conscious chip. So the scientists have been working on building a conscious being, and they want to build a conscious being that's like you and I, who can have imagination, feeling, and thinking all in a unified conscious experience. Yeah. So they divide their task into three task groups. So one task group works on the imagination chip. So their goal is to take some chips, put them together into a, a big chip that literally has the imagination of purple dragons. Mm. That's what they want to do. And so they, they do this by studying human brains when humans are reporting that they're imagining purple dragons. It's not that they see the images in the human brains. Right. It's that the humans report that. They show the images on the screen from their brain activity. They, and then they say, does that match what you're thinking in your mind? And the human says, yes. So what the... Um, so what the team does is they say, okay, so given this function of, um, atoms in this chip, um, probably this chip is actually having literal images of dragons in its mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And let's just stipulate that they succeeded. Okay. So we're granting that they succeed. They made the imagination chip We're they've solved that hard problem of producing the consciousness. Yeah. They did that. Then you have the team that made the, um, the intention chip that's the chip that intends to think about dragons yeah okay so it intends it doesn't ha have image capacity it can't have the images but it can do the intentions okay so they do that and then the third one um is the feeling of joy okay not pain but but joy okay <laughs> so good. so now their team leader is like okay you guys have done really well we have these three chips now so we have the image of purple dragons in this chip and we have the intending to think of purple dragons in this other chip and then the feeling of joy, this joyful chip. Okay, but now there are two unities mm -hmm. of consciousness that we can observe, experience within ourselves. There's what I call perspectival unity, which is the unity of different contents of consciousness within a single perspective. Okay. So I can have, um, in my own conscious perspective, I can have both an intention to form the purple dragons as well as an image of purple dragons. Uh, well, may, may, maybe once the image is there, I'm no longer intending it, right? Because it's already there. True, but, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? I can have a thought, an intention, an image, and a feeling of joy all in one conscious experience. Yeah. That's perspectival unity. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and I would argue that we can know this, not by looking at brains, of course. Uh, first and foremost, we, we know this by experiencing ourselves having perspectives. This, the, uh, Josh, real quick. This, so this is like the this is like the good type of experimental uh, philosophy. Some people really hate like uh, experimental philosophy and going out and asking people about their intuition and stuff. But this is actually like treating your uh, mind, which is like a realm of of consciousness, as an experimental field, and you're like doing it. And yeah, it's it's like thought experiments. But the cool thing about thought experiments is you don't have to go out in the world and do them. But you are like in this conscious realm doing these things. So I just wanted to acknowledge like, that's, that's so fun, man. This yeah. is like experimenting with your own mind. It's cool. Yeah. You can do this at home. Yeah. yeah that's and right. You can do your own experiments, you know, don't take my word for, I always tell, tell people, don't take my word for, don't believe in anything I tell you just because I tell right, you, right. go check it for yourself. See, see if it makes sense. Do you have a perspective? Yeah. Is there something that it's like for you to have a feeling and a thought at the same time mm -hmm. in a unified perspective? Yeah. So that's perspectival unity. Yeah. Uh, another kind of unity is what I call subject unity. And this is the unification of multiple perspectives into one subject. Mm. Uh, so for example, maybe 
this morning, I'm having the experience of hanging out with my wife, Rachel. Right now, I'm having the experience, a complete experience of hanging out with you, Parker. And these are two different um, experiences. And, and both experiences involve a perspective that I would have. But what unifies those two perspectives as belonging to me? Hmm. Because the experience of hanging out with my wife, that's not the experience that you had. Yeah. Okay. I'm talking about my wife, right? Yeah. So you didn't have that experience. Um, so there's something that's unifying those two experiences together into one being. And, I, and, and my answer to the question is that I unify them as a subject. So, so there's two unities here. There's my perspective that unifies different contents of consciousness. Yeah. And then there's the subject itself that unifies different perspectives or states of consciousness. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it makes, so we're still yeah. making the observations to collect our understanding. I just yeah. think that this is so important. And like you said, you know, analytic philosophy, getting getting clear on things. I, um, this is like a really actual helpful way. Sometimes it's actually not clear, but this is so helpful because um, a lot of folks in this in this realm will talk about like uh, Marvin Minsky's Society of Minds, and maybe that's how it, artificial general intelligence comes about. From all, it's an emergent thing that that comes from all these different societies, or the society of different AIs, and. One thing to be looking for if you're if you're if you go in on that view is like perspectival unity. Like if it's going to be a conscious thing, uh, like what what unifies the perspective, especially if you have different AIs doing different tasks, if this one is right. the intending one or whatever, if each one of those yeah. is meant to be that you need to have this unity. In, and sometimes it's called the binding problem in, yes. uh, in, in neuroscience and stuff, but it's moved over into cognitive science and, and AI. And it's so close to like the unity of, of consciousness or unity of phenomenal consciousness, but that it's unity. It's, it's a really hard thing. And then the, the subject unity, um, I really like that. Yeah. It, I, I think I have a looser grasp on it and, um, I've studied this one a lot and I, sometimes I just lose it, but it's like, what, there's these experiences. What, what unifies the experiences is you. So you had this experience with your yeah. wife, you had this experience with me. How are those yes. you know, like un, unified? What, how do we relate those? Well, they're related because of Josh, because of the thing that you are who has yes. experienced them. Yes. Cool. So it kind of seems like an That's internal fine. and external unity. Like there's an in, internal unity, I would say would be like the perspectival one with like you are a unified thing and you have these different powers I don't want to like step onto the powers of consciousness thing, but you do have powers and they are unified in you. Yeah. And because that yeah. thing's unified, that also unifies the external experiences that happen to you. And that's how we can even like sort them that they happen to this thing, Josh. I don't know if that is helpful at all. Yeah. I, I sort of think of them both as internal in, in the following sense. Um, I think of myself as having internal access to a complete mm. unified perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but then my complete unified perspective can change from moment to moment. Yeah. And then I think that I have internal access, not just to the complete perspectives, but to the me having those complete perspectives. Mm -hmm. Dang, that's cool. And I think that internal access is actually really important because I think that if we only think of these things from an external standpoint where we're positing an object to explain the unity, uh -huh then we don't really understand the nature of the unity. And I, and I think that when I read some of these um, accounts in the neuroscience, like the global workspace theory, yeah. for example, um, it looks like they are providing a very helpful functionalist, maybe externalist 
set of parameters that draw a circle around what the thing is that's unified without giving us that internal yes. first person knowledge of it yeah. as it is yeah. if that makes it makes a lot of sense yeah because again this goes back to the idea that there can be something that has a function even if it isn't the same thing as the function so i, I actually think that the conscious awareness is a field of awareness mm -hmm. that has functional um relations to things but it's not itself a function and it's what binds the different contents within it yeah. so this is why because I, I just wanted to go back to the to the team that's building the conscious being and they're saying that the imagination the intention and the feeling they need to be able to go together into a single being how are we going to do that and what i want to say is we recognize these things in, in a in a unified experience by recognizing our own awareness yeah. we're aware of our own awareness that's what it takes really to see the unity we, you become consciously aware of your own conscious awareness which is itself binding together the thoughts the images and the intentions and the feelings and all those things but if you don't have that if you don't have that field of awareness then i think that this team is sort of stuck because now what they can do is they can put the imagination of the dragons next to the intention to think about the dragons next to the joyful chip they can put them all together they can have them causally interacting they can have them forming patterns any patterns you want yeah, yeah. none of that is going to be the same thing as the conscious awareness that binds those together instead what you have is a problem of too many people part, part you have too many beings <laughs> right you do because right. each one has its own perspective yeah if, if, if it takes a mind to have a thought, then that mind gives a perspective to the thing that's having the thought. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the chip that has that thought is a little thinker. Mm -hmm. And then the chip that's having the feeling is a little feeler. And the chip that's having the imagination is a little imager. Yeah. So you have three beings there. Yeah. Plus, you're supposed to have this fourth being that unifies all of them. Um, but you're not going to get that unification merely by stacking the chips. Right or getting them functionally integrated if the unifier is conscious awareness itself, yeah. which is a qualitative non-functional um, reality. Yeah. So sometimes in, in uh, dealing with, or in discussing panpsychism, people will talk about the, the combination problem. Like if there's all these little yeah. things are, are conscious, all these little BBs or waves or particles or whatever, then like how is there's this unified subject and the unity problems are amazing. I love them so much, but um, I think it, it becomes even more obvious here because each one of these like maybe call them neuromorphic chips or something that's what, what the, they do in the literature each one of these neuromorphic chips has a different role to play so it's even more obvious than like looking at a panpsychist view of little particles which who knows maybe they don't they all do the same thing but the consciousness kind of comes together this is like no it's not even that it's that they're actually doing different things and now we got to get all these things together because we know that you and i do these all together we all have them unified so that's really yeah. cool, man. It's like a, such an amazing take on like the, the binding problem and the, the unity problem and the combination problem. It's so good. It's helpful. Yeah. yeah. And it's not to say that, you know, functionalists can't kind of work out responses or whatever, but I, I'm just sort of thinking about, okay, what's a theory that can kind of make the most sense in, in the easiest sort of way. Yeah. And you know, earlier I talked about explaining the known in terms of the known. Yeah. I agree with that. It's just, I think it's part of what I know. Yeah that I have a perspective yeah. and that I have a unification of my perspective. I think that's part of what I know. Yeah. And so instead of positing 
th- 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 everything kind of flips in my mind because I think, wait a second, why do I need to posit things outside my conscious awareness that I don't even know exists right. in order to explain something that I can explain in terms of what I do know yeah. exists, namely conscious awareness, which binds the elements. So yeah. that's where I, I think I, I am real. You only get this from the first person, right? You're aware of yourself mm-hmm. having thoughts and feelings. That first person data, if that's real, then I can use that to fill out my theory. Yeah. And it's not to say, just to be clear, it's not to say that there aren't functions, that there aren't also brain things or whatever like that. It's just to say that I don't need to um, posit more invisible, unnecessary stuff yeah. to explain the unity of consciousness. Yeah. I don't need to do that. Yeah. I don't need to even posit some mysterious pattern uh, that's supposed to bind it all together when I already think that I know what binds it together in my first person awareness. I'm aware of a field of awareness that binds together the different elements. I'm aware of myself as the binder of the different uh, perspectives that I have over time. Yeah. Or so I would argue, and I don't want to overstate this. There are you know objections and replies, but but I, I'm convinced by that. I mean, so I think you, you can sort of hear the passion in my voice because this is one of those things where I didn't used to have this view. And then I took these courses went deeper, deeper, deeper into the topics. And it, it convinced me. It's like, oh, wait a second. I have consciousness. It's real. It actually is real. Yeah. And it's not analyzable in terms of the things that might cause it or give rise to it. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing as that. Just like I'm not analyzable in terms of my parents. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. my parents maybe gave rise to me yeah. or at least my bodily form, but it would be a mistake to say that, you know, I'm nothing but, you know, my parents and their activities, the patterns of my parents. That's me. No, that's not. That's it. A correct it's funny that you said that. I've thought this before about like my dad and I'm like, are all of us just like, just like slivers off of him? And it's like, yeah, but then he would be a sliver off of his dad. Like, mm, and you know, you get to consciousness. That's why I love studying it so much. Cause like, no, cause I can't have his thoughts. I don't think his thoughts. And so I am different than him, even if I'm like super related to him and you know all, all that stuff. But it's I know what it, you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um oh man, this is so good. I I totally lost so, where uh, I was going, but yeah. Yeah. So um are we done with Unity or do you have more to say on that? I mean, there's always more to say, but I would say that yeah. that's probably enough just to kind of give a taste of it. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, really explaining how you get consciousness yeah. is not going to explain the unity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, so um, the first time you came on, you helped me with thinking about facts. And I, I saw another analog here maybe, and maybe I'm mistaken, but I had this problem because I, would, I was studying facts and certain philosophers are like, everything is, is a fact. There's no substances really because think of like a, you know, look at this ball and this ball is just, it's a red ball and that's a fact. And it's a instance of a, this property. And really you, it's just facts all the way down. And I had this really hard time with that. And uh, you were helping me think through like, no, there still has to be a substance uh, ordered in a certain way. And we talked about facts and stuff uh-huh. like that. And I, right. I, I kind of see something the similar. Yeah. 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 And I kind of see a, something similar play out here where it's like, everything's computation or everything's pattern. And you're like, well, no, you still need something there to be, patterned to to like yeah to, to be to, you don't get the pattern without the thing in there i agree with that okay. yeah it's a nice connection nice. there yeah patterns are made up of nodes and then what are the nodes yes oh that's good right yeah and the nodes could be mindless sure parts of a mind yeah listen to that because if if the question is what's fundamental and if mind is fundamental mind can give rise to mindless uh nodes 
in a network. Uh, that Why not? yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the unicorn right in my head. Uh, I don't think it has a mind. It has no mind. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. It's in a mind, but it doesn't have a mind. These are one of those distinctions, right? Like everything might be in mind. It doesn't mean everything has mind. So that's important, yeah. right? Because sometimes people have this sort of worry, like, you know, what are you saying, Josh? Are you saying rocks have a mind? It's like, no, no. My view is that rocks are mindless, just as uh, images are mindless. Mm. But that doesn't mean that images don't arise within a mind. Right. Um, or that rocks aren't formed out of more basic um, conscious beings, right? I mean, right, right, right. There's different ways we can think about that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so how about how about P? Do we have do we have a little bit of time to go to the the powers? Yeah, let's do it. So powers. Um, so just to kind of review again, kind of for the audience, we have cup contains the challenges of explaining conscious beings, and there are many different challenges um, under each of those letters, but I've highlighted one for each. So under the C, we're looking at how the qualitative aspects of consciousness could be functions. We're focusing on functions or patterns or computations. And the suggestion is that there's more to consciousness than merely the relations um, and the computations and, and the network. Um, and then the U has to do with the unities of consciousness. So in addition to the qualitative aspect of consciousness, I think we need to understand how consciousness gets unified into a single perspective. And I don't think function on its own is going to account for that, even though I do think that uh, function is part of that, if that makes yeah. sense, because I do think that unities of consciousness play a functional role, just let, as the shape of a key plays a sh functional role. Mm -hmm. So if I have a certain unified consciousness, that's going to enable me to have certain, um, you know, relationships, certain behaviors, um, and certain behaviors in my brain are going to help enable certain unities of consciousness. Um, so I want to make sure that that's emphasized. I'm, I'm, I do think that brain activity enables and opens up the possibilities of certain types of, of consciousness and that that's important. Yeah. Even if the consciousness is not the same thing as the mere pattern and function. Right. Okay. So then we have P for uh, the powers of consciousness. And here, this is based on that causal exclusion problem that we talked about briefly, which is the problem of understanding how it is that you could consciously do anything if mindless unconscious bits of reality do everything. So a way of sort of thinking about this is um, go back to that waterfall. Imagine that the waterfall is made out of little um, atoms. And then those atoms are the fundamental actors in the motion of the waterfall. So we experience the waterfall as a macro level, splashy sort of reality, <laughs> yeah. but that macro level splashy reality is wholly explained and determined by the micro level particles outside of our direct experience. Yeah. Okay. So th th those particles are, you might say the puppet masters of the waterfall. Mm -hmm. Okay. So far so good. But now the problem is that if we are able to do anything, consciously, then the challenge is to understand how we do something consciously. If the mindless bits of reality are the puppet masters, they pull all the strings. Right. Yeah. Function, the, 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 the functionalist or patternist or compensationalist, th those views don't answer that problem. It's, it's not that one couldn't be a computationalist and adopt certain solutions. It's that those views aren't themselves solutions, if that makes yeah. sense. So 
um, if all that you're thinking is, is a pattern of particles. And earlier I said, maybe we can solve it by sort of reducing your thoughts to physical stuff, but that does not solve the problem of how the micro physical, the smallest things could be the puppet master of the macro stuff. It might seem to, in my head, it, it exacerbates that problem actually by, by wanting to reduce to the physical. It's like, well, it, it's, it's like the argument from reason, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and others where it's like, it doesn't look like the laws of physics are going to do the work of the laws of thought or of thought or of following a chain of inference. That looks like a different type of thing than, uh, yeah, physics or, you know, microphysics or whatever, wherever we're going, quantum physics looks like it might be different than a chain of reasoning. This is Hasker's point as well. And, and even if you do reduce the chain of reasoning to a macro physical state, yeah. as long as the micro parts of that state are the fundamental movers and explainers of the macro state, right. then the reasoning itself isn't doing any causal work yeah. of its own. Yeah. And so this is Jaguan Kim's causal exclusion problem, which is the problem of understanding how it could possibly be that mental activity could do any causal work. Mm. Uh, how it is that if you intend to write a letter, that could make any difference to your body leading you to actually writing that letter. Right. How, how does that actually work? Yeah. And merely reducing the intention to a macro physical state still doesn't solve the problem if the micro mindless states are really still the puppet master, yeah. really pulling all the strings. And it is very interesting because some philosophers have argued that mental causation for this very reason is sort of epiphenomenal. It's not really there. It's not really real. It's like really what's going on is the microphysical stuff is doing all the work, kind of creating the illusion yeah. that the mental stuff is actually doing something, that you are actually doing something. It's kind of an illusion. Mm -hmm. And that sort of illusionist idea actually makes a lot of sense to me from this sort of mindless first view yeah. where the mindless pulls all the strings yeah right you, you'd mentioned um in dealing with i believe it was epiphenomenalism there's like a real quick self-defeat argument which may not fully do it i think this is what you're uh, making reference to but it's like somewhere still in the vicinity is like hey if i'm being convinced and you're showing me reasons for epiphenomenalism it looks like i lose my reason to hold to epiphenomenalism once I affirm it. This is Hasker. He's got an argument like this. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall if it's exactly a circularity argument, but you could probably turn it into that. Yeah. What he says is that if reasoning doesn't have a causal impact, mm -hmm. then you can't actually trust that you arrived at the conclusion on the basis of reasoning. Right. I mean, literally all your beliefs are irrational because they're not on the basis of reason. Yeah. The reasoning is itself is just an epiphenomenon of the mindless. Yeah motion. Yeah. Um, and one kind of argument, in addition to this kind of self-defeat argument, because you could say, hey, you know what, um, that's fine. I didn't arrive at this on the basis of reason fundamentally, it's on the basis of the mindless, but maybe the mindless sort of helps me to survive yeah. through evolution. Yeah. And so the, the, this is that sort of pragmatist idea that, mm -hmm. you know, as long as it sort of is useful, sort of functions as if I'm reasoning, um, that'll help me to survive. But it's, it's kind of interesting because some philosophers actually have made an argument from evolutionary biology 
to mental causation. Mm. And the argument there is that the reasoning, the mental stuff won't help you survive if it doesn't literally make any causal impact right. at all. Right. It shouldn't even be relevant right. to your survival at all. So there's no reason why there'd be any kind of like meaningful sequences of thought where you chase, uh, follow an argument to a conclusion yeah. for a long time or like read a book and like follow it for a long time. That sequence, there's no reason it, it, for it ever to have any kind of meaningful coherence. It's because it has no causal Im impact. Yeah. That the only way that there would be, in fact, this sort of rise of minds that are rational through evolutionary processes is if rational thinking makes a causal difference. Right. It can contribute to survival. Yeah. Uh, this is an argument that I believe Milliken makes. Hmm. Um, I remember seeing him give a, thought, uh, a talk on this. And he's not a friend of mind-first theories, by the yeah. way. Um, but he makes this argument for mental causation. See, I, I just think, well, let's... Let's go ahead and make that argument. It does seem convincing. Now let's add Jaguan Kim's analysis mm -hmm. of mental causation, yeah. that it would be causally excluded if the um, a different kind of reality were more fundamental, mindless reality, let's say. This is the general structure of his argument. I understand that part of his solution, Jaguan Kim's solution in his book, is to give a kind of reductive analysis of the mental yeah. causes and then... Um, a, a non-reductive analysis of the qualitative aspects mm. of consciousness. Yeah, but but then other philosophers say, but no, it's the qualitative aspects of the mental that is part of the causal chain right. in reasoning. There, there's a qualitative aspect to reasoning that's part of it, and that's only meaningful if that has a causal impact. And so, therefore, this is going to be a problem unless mind is somehow prior to the mind. Yeah. Yeah, the the nomological danglers are are still uh, are troublesome. I I think I, uh, everyone always says top down, bottom up uh, causation. So like if you're a if you're a epiphenomenalist, you got like like bottom up causation, uh, but you don't have any top down. For, so you got a, a physical box and you got a M mental box up here, and it goes one way. But you know, interactionists want to say it's both ways. But if you're mind first, it should probably be mind down here, right? And then physical up That's there. It. I actually like yeah. that. I, that was the flip in my own mind, my own thinking, even as I was writing the book, because I used to think, well, yeah, I guess there's evidence for top-down mental causation. Yeah. And then as I, this, this that kind of happened to me as I was reading more of the science side, mm. um, theorists talking about kind of the nature of matter itself. Right. And it was like, oh, okay, maybe we're deeper in than I thought. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, it could be bottom up. Like the mind is the foundational. My mind is foundational to even my own uh, functioning brain. Yeah. And I'm not an aftermath product of my brain. It really is literally the other way that my brain emerges out of prior mentality. Oh man, it's so and, good. And, and my own mentality, it's not just like positing God out there. Right, it's, right. My own mentality yeah. is giving rise to the, the activities of the brain, maybe in coordination with other prior um, arrangements, yeah. but yeah, you can fill it in, in different ways, right? Well, but yeah, the mind is prior. That, that, that brings up something that I've been meaning to ask about, um, uh, like functionalism and patternism and the powers of, of consciousness. And it has to do with like dispositions. So like, like we, we, through our actions over time, it seems like we do kind of form ourselves into uh, a pattern or we have certain dispositions to act or even to think certain ways. And I think that's something we could affirm with the patternists that like, yes, there is this deep integral pattern, 
that I've kind of shaped myself into. I still have to be something to be shaped into that. I can't just be shaped yes. without a thing to be shaped. But um, I do have these like dispositions to, to, to act. And I think even mentally, mental acts, thinking. Um, but I'm not, I'm not just that shape and I'm not just my thoughts. And you mentioned that in the book that you are not your thoughts. And I thought that was so good. Um, it's something that I worry about a lot because I think like, I like my thoughts. I, I kind of obsess over them. Actually, I do a lot on a lot of videos on journaling. I have like lots of journals here in front of me. And if you look back here, I have a bunch there. And um, this is an identity disc from Tron. And it kind of helps me like that's an external mind type thing to, to capture your thoughts because I don't, they're not all a current to me. And that kind of drives me yeah. bonkers because I wish that they were. I hate forgetting things. Um, yeah. wh what's the relation? Do you, do you think that we can like, do we shape our, you say soul, but you also say conscious substance. Does it, is it shaped by our thoughts or are just, can we dispose ourselves to think certain things? What, what do you think? I think so. Yeah. We can have effects on our own selves as we form our intentions, our minds make a difference. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot, a lot of empirical research that your the way that you think will affect the health of your brain. Yeah. Um, my sister, she's a therapist. She tells me some of the things that she uses to help people. Um, and a lot of it is inner work. It's like the work inside your mind mm. and you assign new meanings, you bring up memories, you, you think through that. And all of that is first of all, real and something that you have some control over. And as you mm. manage that, as you, um, move it around in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're shaping yourself in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that. I really like that. Cause I think that is something that the, the patternists kind of get right there. Um, Yes, I want to want to jump all over the cup. So, like the the contents of consciousness, like, um, what do you do with non occurrent thoughts? Um, I, I, if you look at my notes, you might think I'm insane because I write the same thing over, and I'll like, I'll like, uh, I'll write a, an entry, and then I'll I'll put a square around it. That's what this entry is about, and then I go through and I work through it. But I make the same ones over and over, partially because I just don't want that thing to leave me forever it's not it's not yeah. what, where are what do you do with those are they in your um realm of consciousness but you have to access them back into there or what do we do i'm not so sure i mean so i've been thinking about this myself in terms of how we can maybe create access to thoughts yeah. um and, and i like your example of like the books because the books are things that take the form of shapes basically it's yeah. like configurations of shape and those configurations are very important for us because they allow us to then access certain states of consciousness, certain thoughts, yeah. for example. Yeah. And, and I mean, I actually think this is precisely what the brain is. I mean, the, the brain is yeah. a device for accessing states of consciousness. I think that's right. But this is the reason for the brain is, is for us to be able to access certain states of consciousness in relation to this environment that we're mm -hmm. in. Um, because people sometimes ask me, you know, like, what, what's the point of a brain if consciousness isn't reducible to brain activity? It's like, okay, well, what's the point of a book if <laughs> consciousness isn't reducible to books? Yeah. What's the point of a book if a book is not conscious? Yeah. A book doesn't have to be conscious for a book to have a very important role for conscious beings. Mm -hmm. A brain doesn't have to itself be conscious for a brain to have a very vitally important role for conscious beings. This is why when the brain is damaged, it's going to affect your access to conscious states, right. just like if a book is damaged, it'll affect your access yeah. to 
the conscious states. Yeah. It's the same thing. And so I guess I get passionate about this too, because I think sometimes people will have kind of a barrier to recognizing the first person reality mm -hmm. of thoughts and consciousness. So everything gets reduced to something that's outside your own awareness, a brain, which people usually have not seen their own brain, yeah. but they posit that they have a brain. So they're not even aware of it. So the thing that they are aware of their own feelings and emotions, the thing that should be even clearest to them, hmm. uh, some, sometimes gets analyzed in terms of what's less clear to them. And one of my kind of passions and principles as a, as a philosopher is to actually let the clear be the light that shines on the steps into the unclear, yeah. <clears throat> that you actually let the clearest things um, give you information about the other things. So, so this is where I, I say your thoughts are real, your consciousness is real. You have a brain, your brain has a purpose. It's deeply important for consciousness, just as books are important for consciousness. Um, and I'm not saying this analogy between brains and books captures everything, right. um, you know, because you might say, hey, you know what? I don't know of any conscious thing that doesn't have a brain, but I do know of conscious things that don't have a book. <laughs> okay, so there's those differences, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but I would say a reason that um, conscious beings have brains is because brains are devices th that facilitate the specific kinds of conscious experiences in this world. Yeah. So, I mean, e look, e even the a universal being like God, the greatest mind, is utilizing the universe mm. to facilitate conscious connection with us. And well, that's a good point, man. That's a really looks good point. like a brain. <laughs> you could think of the universe like a brain. So I have no problem saying every conscious being has a brain. Mm. I don't need to argue against that. People are like, Josh, you believe in, you know, mind independent, uh, uh, you know, beings that can exist outside of, uh, uh, outside of any brain, you know, brain independent minds is what I meant to say. It's like, well, you know, may maybe every single conscious being works through configurations uh, that you could call brains. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, every, every single conscious being works through something. Yeah, it doesn't have that to be material, right? Yeah, because you, you brought up angels, which is I love to do too. And you're like, well, what about angels? So like an angel could have like, um, doesn't have to have a physical brain, right? Or would it? Well, what do you mean by yeah, physical? Yeah, right, exactly, dude. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, I would say that if we understand physical in the way that many physicists are telling us about the nature of physics in terms of a, a quantum field, and many of them are saying the quantum field itself, I, I mentioned Carlo Rovelli just because I know his work better than yeah. others. Um, he talks about the quantum field emerging out of informational states. And I love what he says. He says information. I, I'm not sort of qualified to tell you what that is like metaphysically, but here's how information functions. Mm. He'll give us the functional aspects of information. Yeah. Coming back to that. Yeah. Um, but I think that the idea that the basic nature of the physical world is itself emergent out of information, which is grounded in mental activity, Ooh, okay. uh, makes sense to me. So that's like, um, so that I, even I, angels have yeah, that could, this. That's like, I mean, you could, you could appropriate some stuff of in, information. Integrated yeah. Theory, yeah. In, integrated. integrated information theory. Yeah. Dude, that's pretty, that's pretty nice. Well, this is helpful too, because uh, like I said, I, I just grabbed some journals that were off the floor and there's just this, I got a bunch of them. They're all over the place, but it, it's helpful for me. I, I think I totally agree with you about brains. So I think of uh, like Andy Clark and, and Chalmers external mind thesis about this, this notebook that a Alzheimer's patient had, and he used it to navigate the world. And if you destroy that, there might be kind of ethical issues where like you should be held responsible for destroying a part of him. 
And I've been chewing on that for a while. And I came to the conclusion that it's like, it's not an external mind. It's an external brain. Um, your, your, your notebooks, when they function that way to help you, uh, help bring that thought back to your mind, it's functioning like another brain, but it's not another mind. You, you are your mind, right? So that's good, man. I really like yeah. that. That's actually super. Yeah. Or you have a mind depends on what you mean by mind. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. if you're a substance, yeah. And maybe it's a part of, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah inseparable part of your substance there's all sorts of ways um man josh this is awesome this cup stuff is huge man thanks for breaking the for breaking it here this is yeah. fantastic thank you yeah 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 the cup i think it helps to organize the different challenges and yeah. um and, and we talked about one sort of in each of those letters yeah um you know in the book under c i talk about the problem of constructing thoughts mm -hmm. and all the different aspects of thoughts and there are different problems with constructing thoughts than with constructing feelings, right. different problems, right. different problems with constructing intentions. I also have a chapter on your intrinsic value mm -hmm. and even what that means. Yeah. So there are many things that I would say go into just the C. <laughs> and then you've got the U, which I'm glad we could talk about that, the unities of consciousness, the powers of consciousness. Um, so I'm glad I could sort of experiment with using that acronym yeah. with you because I think that it would be helpful to have all these different problems organize in a way so that people when they think of the hard problem they understand that's not the the only problem that's like one part of the c yeah that's one part of the c that that's the challenge of explaining consciousness in general uh using a logical deduction from physical stuff mm. that's one specific problem <laughs> that doesn't even address how you explain all the other contents of consciousness thoughts intentions those other ones or the unities or the powers and and if if we can sort of think of all of these wrapped up into the one challenge that everybody from every perspective faces which is the construction challenge of constructing a conscious being mm -hmm. and to realize that everybody it's not that this is like a weapon against materialists yeah. or physicalists or mindless first effect my own view i don't know if you got to the chapters yet where I talk about my own kind of materialist physicalist mm. account, yeah. my account, mm. uh, where it's about filling out the nature of matter. So it's still a mind first account, but it fits very, very well with empirical science and with what a lot of phys uh, physicalists say yeah. about what they mean by physicalism. So I think it's just so important that, that everybody, no matter what their viewpoint is, has this challenge and I think can then learn. Yes about the nature of who we are just by wrestling with the challenge. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's, I don't know. It's hard to make you know, like universal claims. I think that's a really good way, maybe the most important way, maybe the best way to do philosophy because it's kind of inviting people in and you kind of poke holes, but you poke holes one, because it's fun and two, because it, it helps you understand. And then they come back at you and you're like, oh, that is weird. Yeah, that's weird. Maybe I have to bite that bullet or maybe not. But well, you have to bite this bullet too. Okay. That's fascinating. And you're just kind of learning together. That's it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And it's not it's not just yeah. kumbaya because you're yeah. still poking holes, but it's it's doing yeah. it for each other's benefit. And cause it's like this is yeah, I love you, so I'm gonna poke a hole in your exactly. View. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right, man. I love that. <laughs> I still be the love language for philosophers yeah. is arguing yeah. with each other. So. Yeah. Josh, can I get I, I need like a, a little clip, uh a little uh, juicy tidbit here. Do you think that the AI folks can construct a, a conscious substance, or is that something that um, is reserved maybe for, for God? I think that the AI folk cannot just by assembling mm -hmm. computer chips into a certain functional array, 
construct a conscious substance that on its own will not be enough okay it could be that fundamental reality has installed certain laws so that if we enter into certain functional patterns or states that will open up the opportunity for an already existing conscious form to take a new form and maybe manifest into our world that's good man that's yeah brian cutter kenny boyce they got me with that too that the psychophysical laws if there are some then they could be that could happen. All right, man. This has been so good. I'll I'll drop links to all your stuff. People, they're gonna know where to find you. But I will put all Josh's links uh, in there as well, dude. Thanks so much for all your time and thanks for your work. This book. Thank thanks you. for the book. The book's amazing. Um, amazing, dude. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been yeah so much fun. Appreciate yeah. it. All right, folks. That's gonna have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.